talk was about the feminine principle in spiritual practice and particularly in Buddhist practice. And the main theme was that Buddhism traditionally has been a wisdom practice um, dedicated to the cultivation of wisdom and compassion, although if you look closely at the institution and the religion and the formality of it, there's been a big emphasis on the wisdom side of things. And in discussing this, I, I use the terms masculine and feminine to describe the balancing and how that the masculine in terms of archetypes has been considered to represent understanding and wisdom and the feminine compassion and holding and nurturing and that we all have both archetypes in us. But that it's important to recognize when there's an imbalance and that historically there's been an imbalance and, and the way it takes shape in present day contemporary society is on a personal level that we try to control and distrust our inner nature. We distrust our emotionality, our sexuality, our inner life. There's a fear of, of chaos and of losing control. And that there's a tendency in our culture and in the West particularly to try to control nature in general. And, and it's had devastating effects on our environment. So there was some recognition last week of there having been an imbalance and that in the West in particular, as we look at the transplant of Buddhism, there's a very beautiful awakening of the feminine side and, um, and a recognition of the importance of, of relatedness, of sensing our belonging and our connection with each other and this earth and this universe, and that it's in that sense of relatedness and, and a sense of open-heartedness that we really wake up fully that it can't just be that we try to understand what's going on. We also need to love and connect with and, and be a part of this life. One of the descriptions I, I gave last week that um, some of you heard that I really love and I'll share it again was first described in a talk given by Naomi Raymond, Rachel Raymond, and she described being with Joseph Campbell and they were looking at a tanker, a poster, of the dancing Shiva. A very energetic, magnificent picture of, of Shiva dancing. And Rachel Raymond's very observant. She's a physician, she's used to observing, and she noticed that, that underneath Shiva was a little man kind of looking at the ground, kind of lost. And she pointed that out and said, what's this? And, and Joseph Campbell said, well, Shiva is dancing on the back of a small being, kind of lost in his small self, kind of lost looking down on the ground and, and not really awake to what's going on. And so it is that whenever we're lost and we're not awake, we forget that God is always dancing on our back. That Shiva is always dancing, the creation, the destruction, all of life is dancing every moment if we just look and listen and touch life directly. So I start with that as kind of a, a general review of, of what I described last week and then I promised to those that were here last week to flesh it out more and talk about the balance of things, how given 
that this is a forgotten side that sometimes the feminine that our nature is not trusted and it's forgotten how do we wake up to that how do we develop a wise relationship with the feminine what's the balance of masculine and feminine and I won't be covering all of that tonight but some This weekend, I went to a sweat lodge, a Native American sweat lodge, which is a ceremony in an um, enclosed structure where there's a lot of heat and it's very hot and you just basically sweat and contact the elements and sometimes chant and always pray and get very quiet and wake up to your relationship with your inner being and nature around you. It's very beautiful. It very much embodies and embraces the feminine principle, relatedness. The main um, mantra is all my relations, omatakuyasan. So there's a constant remembering through the elements and through the beings that form a sacred circle in the ceremony of our connection with it all. And in this particular sweat lodge, Every prayer, it was a very small group of us, by the way, it was about six of us or seven of us, and every prayer had to do with loving and with awakening to loving and the longing for loving and all the fear and difficulty about allowing ourselves to love. It was very beautiful. People were very kind of open and vulnerable. And what really struck me was this sense of it should be so simple that we just, of course we want to love, so why don't we let ourselves? I said, I described last week in one poem the line that to allow the soft animal of our body love what it loves. And why don't we? And that was part of what was shared, how the fear of breaking our hearts, that you can't love without having your heart broken. The nature of loving, of really connecting, is to lose the separate self, to break away and break apart all that we've been defending against. That when we open to love, we open to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, all of it. It's a complete package. We can't just have part. So people shared about the joy and sorrow of it and the difficulty of it. And again, I was really touched by that same sense of this kind of basic tension where we really somewhere deep down know that it's okay. We trust our nature. We know it, whether we call it Buddha nature or God or Atman or soul. We all have touched in some way that sense of communion and peace and beauty that comes from sensing our oneness our relatedness. And the tension between that knowing and the day-by-day -day contraction that happens that we're habituated into, you know, our habitual behaviors of getting all self-involved and worried about what other people think and feeling separate and feeling jealous and competitive and comparing and judging, endless suffering in these habitual contractions that we have. And the biggest one of them all is this contraction against ourselves that we keep on putting in front of ourselves 
This idea of who we think we are, it's based on being separate, and it's just surrounded by judgment and reactivity. We're constantly trying to live up to being something better and putting down how it, how it is in the moment. Both as a therapist and also just in my own you know, healing work within myself and what happens with students meditating, the thing that I find is just so beautiful is when we stop running from the feelings that are, that are hard, that are difficult to be with, and simply sit down and listen and feel and touch what's there. I'm lucky because as a therapist, I get to bear witness to that a lot. People are paying money to come in and sit with difficult things, you know. In a way, it's kind of crazy. Pay money to feel more pain. But what I see again and again, and I find certainly in my own life, regularly, is that when we're willing to stop being so busy and really pay attention and feel very fully, very fully experience the depth of our wanting, the depth of our grief, of our loneliness, of whatever's there, and release around that, really express that feeling. After that, in its way comes a real deep sense of peace and well-being. And I suspect everyone in here knows about that. When you really have that kind of catharsis or full experiencing, once we've touched fully what's there, there's more space. There's a natural opening. We have more capacity to hold what's there. And in that space, the heart opens and there's a sense of well-being. It's quite a beautiful process. We hear the term sacred space a lot. And sacred spaces are special and intentional and like as in a church or a sanctuary are special sacred grounds that people have worshiped on and built built an awareness into. Ultimately, our practice is to have our awareness itself be a sacred space that can really contain any of the life that arises within us. What happens, though, is that we get trapped in our reactions. We get trapped in our fears. We get trapped in what's called the shadow side. Last week when I talked about the feminine, I described the feminine as kind of the lover archetype, that which deeply appreciates beauty and life and feels connection, feels aliveness. Let me just say a few words about the shadow lover, because one of the reasons we don't open so well to the lover in us is because of our fear and difficulty with the shadow lover. In fact, When we're not open to the lover, we're actually living out the shadow lover. That's the way the Jungians describe it, and it has a lot of truth to it. If the lover simply appreciates life, the shadow side is grasping after what's appreciated, is clinging to what's appreciated. Or the shadow side is shut down 
is too scared to appreciate, scared of rejection, abandonment. So the shadow side of the lovers, the grasping after love, or the aversion, the fear, the fear of intimacy. In a sense, you can think of the shadow side within us as any aspect of us that's difficult to be with. And because it's difficult, that we push away in some sense. It's the greed, the hatred, the anger, the fear. It's all the reactivity to what's difficult is included in the shadow. And we keep it away in many ways. We deny it. It's not there. We repress it. We suppress it. We try to channel it. We do it a lot by being busy. You know, the Chinese word for busy, the roots of the Chinese language, and there's so much wisdom in the Chinese language, is the word heart and the word killing. Isn't that amazing? Busyness is heart killing. That our busyness, and this is really deep in most of us, Our way of getting occupied and preoccupied and busy is a running away from the shadow, a running away from what's difficult in this very moment. In the book of the Ecclesiastes, it says, Better one handful of quiet than two hands full of striving after wind. So we spend much of our time doing that striving. There's a lot of wanting, and we do that through fantasizing and grasping and thinking. Our thinking is a way of scratching an itch, you know, trying to make it happen in our minds or plan how it'll happen, how we can get more of what we want. And aversion, judging. We judge ourselves, we push away parts of ourselves. We also pretend a lot. You know, it's really scary because somewhere in our early in our lives, we were told that we had to be somebody different than we were, that we had to be special or important. So we have to do a lot to appear okay. We pretend. We lie because we're afraid of getting bad feedback from the world. So we lie about things. It's really built into us. I mentioned earlier that the primary way that we react in this world is to our own sense of self. And in that reaction, it's basically shame. There's a sense of shame as in something is wrong with me. That is the most fundamental distrust of our nature that can arise. So we talk about the feminine and opening to the feminine, and yet it's not so easy if we live, a lot of us, with a basic distrust of our nature, right? We're asking to open to something that's dangerous. And so it is, it makes sense that historically there's been so much controlling of the feminine side, so much fear of the chaos, the dark side, the shadow. What's really interesting to me is that if you look through the natural world, if you look through all the creatures 
on this planet, the same dynamics that we're so critical of ourselves exist everywhere in nature. The reflexes of grasping and the reflexes of aversion are absolutely pervasive through the natural world. There's a, uh, I'm going to give you a few examples because I was kind of delighted by this article I found about um, these reflexes in all creatures. And in one, there's a description of a meadow mice, which are called voles, field voles. And it describes how their whole social behavior is mediated by hormones. And as with humans, they have oxytocin and vasopressin which is stimulated by birth, lactation, and sex. And that's what creates their social bonding. And in this particular kind of mouse, after they bond, they become very hostile to all the other mice in their community. So they have this intense one-on-one love affair, and there's so much hormonal satisfaction in the one-on-one love affair that that they guard their pair by being incredibly hostile to all other of their species. Now, a related mouse is very different after it stimulates those hormones with sex and lactation and it pairs for a while, but then it's not monogamous anymore and there's just enough hormone to allow for good enough mothering. The difference is that the receptors in the brain are in different places. There's a little bit of a different chemistry and the result is the difference between monogamy and non-monogamy, aggression and non-aggression, very different set of affairs. Social bonding comes out of these hormones that are in all of us. That says a whole lot. There's another um, article that I read that describes Let's see, the title of it says, Nature's Hidden Agenda, From Molecules to Mankind, Deception Seems a Part of Life. That in the survival of the species, it's built in that one of the skillful means, you know, skillful means, is to deceive. Here's some examples. Chimps lie to their fellow chimps about food sources. They have ways of misdirecting showing other chimps that food is in one direction than going and hoarding it for themselves somewhere else. Viruses use camouflage to coat themselves. And it turns out that the simpler the organism, the simpler the mode of, of um, deception. But this isn't so simple. Various pathogens use camouflage to coat themselves with proteins that keep them from being recognized and destroy, destroyed by the immune system. Similarly, protective coloration allows moths, reptiles, and rodents to avoid predators by blending in with the landscape. When an ordinary house cat feels itself threatened, its hairs will stand on end, making the cat appear larger and presumably more dangerous to an adversary. And there's more. The male scorpion fly, who can only copulate with a female if he first provides her with a nuptial gift of a dead insect, Male flies who lack such offerings may steal insects by approaching males who already have them and adopting the posture and behavior of females. We pretend to get what we want. (laughs) That's why that one was cool. (laughs) 
Here's one about a female baboon. If she wants to fool around grooming a sub-adult male, she risks the indignant wrath of a dominant male. You know, it's dangerous to have affairs, right? So in this, one, in this description, a female who is thus inclined but who found herself within sight of such a dangerous male got around the problem this way. As the object of her attentions, the young male, crouched out of sight behind the rock, the female gradually worked herself into a position where the dominant male could see her head and her back, but not her arms, which were busily grooming the young fellow. (laughs) Humans are more complicated, but we do the same stuff, don't we? The difference is we go around with a whole lot of shame. I'm not sure if other creatures do. I suspect not. I think that's one of the um, particular uh, responses of our species. So one of the first areas of healing has to do with dealing with our own shame, dealing with the I'm not good enough or something's wrong with me feeling. And here, the skillful means are really, there's a lot of them. One of them has to do with being willing to share what we feel is wrong with ourselves with each other. And in so doing, discover that we're kind of all in the same boat. That releases a lot of it. One of the beauties of 12-step programs is that's what happens. There's a lot of sharing with humor and with wisdom of what just all the foibles of being human and it makes it less personal. I saw a far side recently and I don't remember it exactly but it was kind of like this. There was a picture of a bunch of bears surrounding a very scared human male and these bears apparently were part of some 12-step program you know, Maneaters Anonymous. And one was describing to the others how he was really getting in touch with his addiction for, um, you know, eating humans. And there was a lot of shame about it, but he was really working hard to heal his inner cub. (laughs) (laughs) And the other one said, yep, I feel shame too. But hey, I say, let's eat him anyway. (laughs) Guys looking appalled. We're all in the same boat, so it becomes very important to to really let each other know what's difficult. There's a whole sense in us that we have to meet these ideals and this hyper-reactivity to anywhere we feel we're making mistakes. And yet if we look close up, we're always stumbling around. It's one big experiment and we're learning. And yet we are all, every one of us, to some degree, kind of caught in being habitual, caught in reacting in a conditioned way to what goes on. It's the grounds of our learning, and if we don't get caught in shame, in reaction to ourselves for it, it's possible to wake up out of the very places we feel most stuck, most caught. But it takes us a a relaxed attitude about the fact that we get stuck. The third Zen patriarch talked about 
our liberation is being when we are without anxiety about our imperfection. Sometimes we get a taste of that where we really get it that, hey, we're just human and it's okay not to be perfect. And there's such a sense of freedom in that. Jack Hornfield describes in his book A Path with Heart that it is not perfection we must seek, but freedom of the heart. He goes on to say, a genuine spiritual path does not avoid difficulties or mistakes, but leads us to the art of making mistakes wakefully, bringing to them the transformative power of our heart. My sense is that the only way to open to the feminine side, to open to the lover that's within us, is if we have that attitude that, yes, we're, we're conditioned, there will be traps, we will hurt, we will touch sorrow and pain, and yet we can be quite forgiving about all of that, very accepting, that we can go ahead and let ourselves make mistakes, give ourselves permission, and yet do it wakefully, really bringing kindness to the process. Virginia Campbell writes, they say the secret is to do the wrong things calmly. And dawn by dawn in mapless wonder, we are learning the landscapes to avoid, learning our one death perfectly. They say the secret is to do the wrong things calmly. Isn't that a great line? In the teachings of the Buddha, there are enumerated several qualities of the heart and mind that allow us to do this, that allow us to walk through life given our conditioning and wake up. The Buddha describes it as the five spiritual faculties. And these spiritual faculties are a natural expression of us waking up. And they're what help us they're what helps us to wake up even more. So what I'd like to do is just go over them with you a bit, because they've been very valuable to me in finding kind of a balanced way to approach the challenges of the path. The first of these spiritual faculties is that of faith. Faith is the first, and in a sense it's the last. After you've done the fifth, you come back to faith again. Faith is basically trusting our nature. It's trusting nature, all of nature. Faith is that sense of it's really okay. It includes an experience of, of devotion or a deep sense of well-being with how it is. Faith is what allows us to really be at one with the mystery. When we're not thinking about the future or reflecting on the past, all it is is a mystery. It's don't know mind. And it takes faith to be able to put aside, let go of all our escape valves and really sit down in it, really discover What's it like this moment? 
faith involves having an enormous capacity to hold what the Taoists describe as the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. If we think we're separate, and if we feel very threatened out of that separateness, it's hard to have that capacity. We don't trust we can be with it. So it builds gradually. The more that we touch what's there in the moment, the more we touch the life that's within us, the more we actually learn to trust that we can do that. So it builds on itself. There becomes a sense of gratitude for anything that arises because the appreciation for life is so unconditional. One Zen nun writes, thanks for everything, I have no complaints. This is what she describes in her writings, that she meets life all the time with that basic way of being, of receiving. Thanks for everything, I have no complaints. That's an interesting one to try when your car breaks down or when you're feeling really sick or when you're caught in traffic. For me, red lights and traffic when I'm in a rush. Thanks for everything, I have no complaints. It's a great one. Mostly it makes me laugh because I'm complaining like crazy inside. So it's kind of a great paradox. It helps to even say it. Thanks for everything. A Japanese Zen master speaks of an unexpected moment, a moment of surprise and gratefulness. People often ask me how Buddhists answer the question, does God exist? The other day I was walking along the river. I was suddenly aware of the sun shining through the bare trees, its warmth, its brightness, and all this completely free, completely gratuitous simply there for us to enjoy. And without my knowing it, completely spontaneously, my two hands came together and I realized I was making gasho. It's bowing. And it occurred to me that this is all that matters, that we can bow, take a deep bow, just that, just that. What a beautiful practice to encounter any aspect of life with that quality of gratitude of really bowing. I have no complaints. I'm grateful for it all. Bowing, really honoring the sacredness of life in every moment. It's a beautiful practice, whether you do it physically or in your emotional, mental, spiritual body. Although I think it's very useful for me, I find, to bow physically. It's It's just a very letting go, freeing, delicious experience to bow to it all. So faith is the first quality, that trusting, that appreciation, that gratitude for life. When we have faith, There's a natural energy that's generated. We become enlivened by our faith. So that's the second quality, which is energy or effort. It's not 
a straining kind of effort. It's not an effort or an energy that comes out of fear or striving, but rather a natural expression of being alive. We do find, and this is one of the magical discoveries, is that when we make effort intentionally, it doesn't drain us, but rather it increases our energy. And some of you know that's true with exercising, that if if you can get yourself to go and do it, how much more energy is there? We don't get depleted. For many of us, what can most energize us is a remembrance of our mortality. It's very, very powerful, this experience of death as an advisor, remembering that we don't have so long, really energizes the moment. When we remember that we're going to die, we sense our love for life. And it's not that death is bad, it just wakes us up to how much we value life. When we're awake to that, there's a fullness of our energy. The way Don Juan describes it in Carlos Castaneda books is that death advises us when we remember our mortality that every act counts. This moment counts. That every moment, every act is like our last dance. And that we can do it, we can abandon ourselves to it. It's that quality of energy. So in a sense, the second quality of effort and energy is the spiritual warrior. It's that in us which has that deep intention to live fully, that really is going for it. I was interested recently to read an article by a man named Fred Wolf, who's a physicist. And he's also been very involved with shamanic practices. So he writes a lot about quantum physics and how you can discover the power of intentionality by looking at quantum physics. Now, I'm not really good at discussing this stuff, but it really, something in it felt very powerful, so I want to share what I got out of it. The way he describes it is that subatomic particles are only tendencies or probabilities. That as Heisenberg discovered, you cannot describe with an electron its location and its speed. You can tell one or the other, but there's an ambiguity. It's still just a tendency. And what ends up creating the particle itself is the intention of the observer. Most of you are probably familiar with this now in quantum physics that the observer can't be separated from what is observed. That how we pay attention determines what we're attending to. Fred Wolf writes, if the spatial location of a particle is inherently ambiguous, then when and where it actually manifests is a matter of the observer's intent. Where the physicist looks for the particle influences where it will show up. Intent is the tool that precipitates a probability into a definite event. Events become meaningful to you only as a result of an intent, a vision as to what goal, pathway, or direction you're intending to move in. 
It's true in subatomic physics, and it's true when we look at the broader sweeps, our themes of our life, that where we pay attention and how we pay attention determines our experience. There's that phrase in, from India that what a pickpocket, when a pickpocket sees a saint, he or she sees the saint's pockets. You know? If our intention is to wake up, then we bring that to our moments and it enlivens our moments and it wakes us up. If our intention is to go to sleep or shut down in some way, that's what's nourished. We talk a lot about the shadow side of, of the feminine or the lover is getting caught or identified with wanting and grasping. And yet, in order to really open to our deepest intentionality, we need to be able to open to that very wanting with wisdom, with careful attention. Our suffering comes because we actually want for too little. Do you know what I mean? We set our sights on a, very, on a very small band of what's possible. We grasp after things that are kind of substitutes for the real thing. If our deepest longing is to wake up and to be alive, and if we can connect with that, then our intentionality becomes incredibly powerful. The goal or object of our deepest intentionality then really is mindfulness. It's to be awake and that is the third spiritual faculty, is mindfulness. So there's faith leading into effort and energy and energy with its object of mindfulness. Mindfulness, as we've discussed here, is that quality of awareness that notices and experiences what's true in the moment. I mentioned last week that it can also be described as heartfulness, that we bring to any given moment a fullness of mind and a fullness of heart, and we wake up in that moment. Our challenge is that we get scattered, and the miracle, as Titnat Han describes it, is if we can gather our attention to really notice what's true here and now. With mindfulness, we get awakened out of the small self that's really just an idea in the mind. With mindfulness, we reconnect to the ocean of awareness that sees the waves of our being, but recognizes the waves are just part of that, that we're not confined to any small set of waves. So mindfulness wakes us up to our true identity, to the ocean of being. Mindfulness also maintains, helps us maintain a balance so that if we're getting very spacious but we're not touching the waves of our experience, that then gets facilitated. And if we're very lost in a wave, mindfulness reconnects us to the vastness. An interesting question that came up in this article I mentioned from Fred Wolf is, Who's intending and who's being mindful? 
And what I'd like to share with you is his response to that, because I love the way it was described. When asked, whose intent are we talking about here? Who's trying to be mindful? He writes, the Australian Aborigines came up with the best answer I know of. The great spirit, they tell us, dreams us and all of material reality into existence. Through our own personal intent, we can join the great spirit in co-dreaming. The trick is to become aware that we're doing it, mindfulness. He says, then we take up the slack and co-dream. So again, the question is, who's doing the dreaming? Who's becoming mindful? And the response was, the true location of the I, the agent of intent, of experience, is the entire world. I, in fact, contains the space of the universe and its time, too. It's a field of consciousness that's awake, aware, alive, omnipresent over all space-time. So although we talk about effort and intentionality and the beauty of mindfulness, there's no doer here. There's simply the experience of paying attention, which reconnects us with an identity that's boundless. The fourth faculty that the Buddha pointed to was concentration. Concentration is the quality that brings power and intensity to our practice and our life experience. Mindfulness is being present. When we concentrate, we deepen that sense of presence by having a continuity. What happens for most of us is that we get spot hits, you know? We get these flashes where, oh, I'm here. Yeah, I feel this, I sense this, I touch this, I hear this. And then we get lost again, right? We go in and out. So concentration is a skillful means of building the muscle of paying attention. That's why we call it practice, because we need practice. Our habit is to to leave. Watch yourself, even tonight, drifting in and out. We leave and then we come back. So concentration, whether we're concentrating on the breath, on a person's words and meanings, or on a picture, or on sensations. Concentration is that quality of bringing the mind back again and again to what's true in the moment. When the mind gets steady and calm, there becomes a sense of wholeness. We become absorbed and connected and engaged with that which we are watching. And there's a real sense of the fragmentation that falls away and coming together into a sense of oneness of being creative and wholly alive. This is from Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Siddhartha listened. He was now listening intently, completely absorbed, quite empty, taking in everything. He felt that he had now completely learned the art of listening, He had often heard all this before, all these numerous voices in the river, but today they sounded different. 
He could no longer distinguish the different voices, the merry voice from the weeping one, the childish one from the manly one. They all belonged to each other. They were all interwoven and interlocked and twined in a thousand ways. When Siddhartha listened attentively to this river, to the song of a thousand voices, when he did not listen to the sorrow or laughter, did not bind himself to any particular voice and absorb it into himself, but heard them all, the unity, then the great song of a thousand voices consisted of one word, perfection. So this quality of concentration is a deep listening again and again, continuously, moment after moment, where we really penetrate into the essence of what we're listening to and become one with it. Out of concentration and mindfulness, wisdom arises, and wisdom is the fifth quality. Wisdom is seeing clearly the nature of our experience that when we listen, continuously pay attention, really look, what we discover is that it's all constantly changing. There's nothing to hold on to. Every moment, there's no self because we're constantly changing. What can we call self? What abides permanently? There's nothing. It's an ever-changing dance of sensations and thoughts and feelings. We become aware of the suffering that's inherent in the grasping on process, that as soon as we try to hold anything tight, another person, our youth, anything, it changes, it dies, it is ungraspable. So we become aware that everything's changing, that there's suffering when we grasp, that there's really no inherent self that it's happening to, but rather, we're the universe. We're connected to it all. We're influenced by it all. It's interrelated. We're part of the web of life. But there's no abiding separate self. These things, these realizations or insights are the substance and the content of wisdom. So the Buddha described how the fifth faculty that naturally arises as we wake up is wisdom. As I described last week, this brings us to the two wings of the bird, because when wisdom arises, when there's understanding, love naturally comes forth. I was reading today in the Inquiring Mind, which comes out of the West Coast, it's a Vipassana kind of magazine newsletter, an article by Thich Nhat Hanh, who describes the beauty of wisdom and how the Buddhist teaching is that love is born from understanding. He said, the willingness to love is not enough. If you do not understand, you cannot love. The capacity to understand oneself, the other person, will bring about acceptance and loving-kindness. Then he writes, it is possible that the next Buddha will not take the form of an individual. The next Buddha may take the form of community. He said that the next Buddha would be 
Maitreya, the Buddha of love. The two wings of the bird, wisdom and compassion. Tidnat Han emphasizes love because I think he is in the Mahayana tradition recognizing how dry and not alive our practice is. If we simply try to understand but don't open our hearts to that which we're looking at. He writes this, he says that using the energy of mindfulness we can touch the body of the Buddha within us and around us at any time. And I know the Sangha body is in me, Sangha being community of beings. It is in me and around me. The trees, the grass, the blue sky, the flowers are all elements of my Sangha, and you are my Sangha body. You take care of me. When we begin this recognition that we're not separate, that we're truly connected to each other and belong to this universe, when we start to be free to let our hearts love, then there's a deep sense of trust and faith that arises. And the cycle keeps going because that brings us back to the first spiritual faculty again. That wisdom and love then open us again to that faith or trust that it really is okay. That deep sense of appreciation that we really can let go and live in this mystery we can let go and live fully in our lives. So I'd like to um, play you a little tape that's very, very short and invite you to meditate as you listen to it. And And just to say that one of my favorite songs by Van Morrison has the line, let go into the mystery. And this is on that theme. grandfather or big sister or big brother or teachers or doctors or soldiers or reverence or athletes or lawyers or TV stars or any people who are working or any people who are playing not even the president not even a king or a queen not even people who love each other know what a single thing is it is a great and wonderful mystery to all of us, that anything is or that we are. And whether somebody says, I don't know how anything came to be, or God made everything, they are simply pointing to the feeling of the mystery, of how everything is, but nobody knows what it really is or how it came to be. 
As long as we go on feeling this mystery, we feel free and full and happy. And we feel and act free and full and happy to others. This is the secret of being happy. From the time you are small until the time you are old. If you will remember every day to feel the mystery, and if you will remember to feel that you are more than what you look like, and if you will remember to be the mystery itself, then you will be happy every day. And all kinds of wonderful happenings will come up for you. You will feel happy, and you will always help and love others even those who are having trouble feeling happy and are even trying to make you forget the mystery. Someday you may meet someone who has felt the mystery really strong for a long time, so that person feels the mystery all the time and is always happy. Such a person is the best person to learn from about happiness and life and love. I hope you will remember to feel the mystery every day as long as you are awake forever. The best thing to tell anybody is to remember to feel this. I have been doing this for a long time, and it is the best and most important feeling of all. I am very happy I could tell you this. Maybe someday we will meet face to face. Maybe. Anyway, at least you and I will always know that at least one other person somewhere is remembering and feeling and loving the mystery right now. <laughs>